This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Greetings, I am Barry. If you're searching for answers, spiritual help, clairvoyant readings, healings, crystals, books, incense or jewellery, you need to go to Infinity, Hamilton Spiritual Centre, in the new premises at 550 Anglesey Street, or you can phone us on 838 1838. This is your link between this life and the next. Become the change the world needs today. Greetings, I am Barry. This is the voice within for another week. Now this week we'll um, we'll have a little listen to Neil Donald Walsh. Now Neil, he was here a few years ago and I've interviewed him quite some, well, many years ago when you think about it. Um, he's the guy, of course, who wrote Conversations with God. And I'm not sure how many other books since the series of Conversations with God. Um, but here's, here he's talking about the challenge for humanity and how we solve it. So this will be quite interesting, I think. And here he's being interviewed by Michael Sandler from Inspire Nation. So we've got a website, inspirenationshow.com. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm Michael Sandler, your host on Inspire Nation. If you've ever wanted to discover who you truly are and make the ultimate difference in the world, then do we have the Essential Path Show for you. Today I'll be talking with a guest I've wanted on the show since the first day I reached out to publicist years ago, Neil Donald Walsh, the author of Conversation with God series, including seven New York Times bestsellers, and the author of a brilliant, profound, must-read of a book, perhaps essential for humanity's survival, The Essential Path. And that's just what I want to talk with him about today, about making the daring decision to be who you truly are. That plus we'll talk about Mago's Garden, Burning Building Moments, The Body Human, Great Truths and Blasphemies, Mortal Sins and Missing Mass, Waves and the Ocean, and What in the World He Who Dances with Branches Has to Do with Anything. So welcome to the show, Neil. Are you ready to shine? Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I see that you are shining enough for both of us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Usually I like to go into a guest like a Neil Donald Walsh 101, but we have so much to cover today. You're everywhere on the web. I'm going to let people do their research. I want to dive right into things. Neil, what is the biggest problem in the world today? The biggest problem in the world today? is that most people don't know what the biggest problem in the world today is. And that's uh, creating a profound uh, circumstance. We we are seeing the effect of the biggest problem in the world today. That is, the impact of that problem is evidenced all around us. But we don't really know why that evidence keeps arising all around us. Now, you know you have a problem when you are aware of the evidence of the problem, when you are aware of the outfall, but you don't know what's causing the problem. You know you have a really big problem. The outfall of the problem, the evidence that we have this problem uh, that is witnessed now around the world, I can put into one word, and that is alienation. 
I am seeing a level of alienation. Um, people alienated from people, races alienated from races, cultures alienated from other cultures, spiritual groups, that is religions, alienated from other faith traditions and other religions, political groups, political parties, alienated from other political parties. It's just an astonishing thing. More than anything I've seen, Michael, in, in, in the 75 years of my life, I've never seen anything quite like this. Of course, there's always been some, you know, some antagonism between people and groups on the planet, but I've never seen it at this level and so pervasively present around the globe, not just in the United States or in Europe, but all over the place. So I began to look closely at what is causing this alienation. And I realized that most people have no idea what's causing it. And so we're not seeing any response to it, any, any curative response to it. We're not seeing any healing suggestions from anybody who would be in a position to offer such suggestions. Religious leaders are not offering us suggestions about it because I don't think they're really clear on what's causing it. Neither are the world's political leaders, the world's heads of state. I don't see corporate executives, people who are very high in the uh, corporate world. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really see anybody, frankly, except maybe you, Michael, able to make a suggestion on what we could do to solve the biggest problem in the world today. Well, that's the mission that I'm on. In fact, I had, uh, before I read your book, two days ago, I had a YouTube Live. And I was talking about the rose bush and the roses. And, and that gets along the analogy of the waves in the ocean, something that we're going to talk about. And having to look at the world in a completely different way. Now, what, let's walk through your book because it is, I have never found a better way of both describing this and helping us. They say a great leader isn't somebody who tells you what to do but helps you get the buy-in so that you think it's your own decision. Well, because you don't think it's your own decision. It is your own decision. The idea isn't to bamboozle people into thinking that it's their own decision. The idea is to inspire people to make their own decision and to make a new one if their current idea is different from an idea they may have had before you chatted with them. So let's, let's go from there then, and we're going to help people to guide them on this path perhaps today. We're talking about this cumulative problem of alienation. It's fascinating to me when I do a Google search, a YouTube search, that all of these searches reinforce our bias, whatever our bias may be. What's the alienation going on today, and why is it producing so much what you call system failure? Well, the alienation that's going on is a thought that somehow the problems that we are facing, and there are, there are problems, of course, on the earth, that the problems we're facing, both individually and collectively, are being created by those other people. It's, it's always those them. other. It's them over there, you know, those, those, those immigrants that don't belong here, or those uh, angry women. Or, or those uh, crazy liberals, or those wacko conservatives, or you know those other people who just don't understand and are not getting it right. Those young people, those students who are protesting and don't know what they're talking about. It's, it's always the uh, you know those 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 um, um, those gay people, or those straight people, or those who, whoever LBGT. You know, it's 
it's always someone else who's creating the problem. And so that's the current condition that we, and I've never, as I, I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but I've Go never seen, I've never seen so much blame being placed on those others as I'm seeing these days. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think it's because there are some leaders in the world, I'm not going to mention names, and not just one, but, but actually several uh, world leaders uh, who are encouraging uh, us to make such judgments, who are suggesting, in fact, that if there's a problem in our environment, it's because of those others who are creating the problem. And if we could just get those others to straighten up, and if we can't get them to straighten up, get them out of our space, remove them from the, you know, from the space, then things would be all right again. And that's, that's the current condition uh, that I'm seeing around the world. I don't want to sound like a Zen Cohen here, but you talk about opposite system having the opposite effect. Uh, a system for producing peace is producing war. A system that's producing just that's supposed to produce justice is producing inequality. Is it possible that this level of alienation is actually a part of the process to actually remind us who and what we are, so that the opposite is produced? I don't think there's any question about that. I think that's exactly what's going on. But I think that the length of time that it is going on and that it will continue to go on is determined by or will be determined by how deeply we understand what you just said and how deeply we understand as a result of this process who we really are and why we're really here. And by we, I mean humanity. Who, who, who are human beings? What is our true nature? What does it mean when we say human nature? Well, it's just human nature. What do we mean by human nature? And for that matter, why are we here? What is the point of life on, on this planet? But I don't think there's any, pro any, any question that part of the process that you're describing uh, is what we talked about in the Conversations with God books, which is the law of opposites. That is, in order for anything to be experienced fully and completely, its exact opposite must appear in the contextual field within which we live our lives. If I could just give you a simple example please, to, please. to use it, to use an example that most people would understand immediately. Let's just say we make the decision, I'm speaking metaphorically now, but let's say a person says, you know, I am the light. It's my, it's my desire to be a light unto the world, to shine a light wherever I go, to be the light among people who know me and so forth. Now, if we decide that I am the light, uh, but, but, but we, we find ourselves in a place where there is nothing but the light. Let's say that we're a candle in the sun. Mm -hmm. Well, we're there all right, along with the 50 billion kajillion other candles. Yeah. But, and we can know that we are the light, but we can't experience ourselves being the light. And if it's our heart's desire to experience ourselves, not just to know conceptually, but to experience ourselves, I want to use the word experientially. If that's our heart's desire, we're going to actually call forth or at least search around to see if anywhere in the contextual field there is this thing called the darkness. And if we find the darkness, we will move toward it or even co-create it with those around us who have the same desire to be the light in order that we may experience ourselves as the light amidst the darkness. So that's a metaphor, but it explains exactly how the law of opposites in the universe works. So you cannot know up without down, left without right, male without female, there without here, and then without before and after. So we, we wind up creating, the, when I say we, I mean all of humanity, working collaboratively and collectively, we wind up creating 
whether we are doing it consciously or not, but at a subconscious level, we're creating a contextual field within which we can then turn around and experience who we really are. This whole process that I'm calling uh, the law of opposites, the process I've just described, is what gave rise to the to the um, ancient saying uh, of the calm before the storm, and we often talk about the storm before the calm, which is what we're going through right now. We, th- that is, all of human experience moves through cycles where, seem, where things seem to get worse before they get better, for precisely the reason that I just described. So if we want to bring hope to the situation, I've had a couple uh, NDEs, situations that that I almost permanently checked out, which were the most incredible positives, despite how broken and mangled and whatever I was, they were the most incredible positives. So if humanity is experiencing, in essence, a crisis right now, we are seeing that so much darkness so that we can be the light. When we learn to live in this land of paradox, doesn't that give us great hope? It, it, it does, if we have the insight to see exactly what's going on. And if we have a larger space of awareness of who we really are, uh, large enough to cause us to know that our own eternal life uh, is not threatened in any way by what's occurring right now on this planet. That would be a, that would be a, a, a place that, not many people relative to the total number of humans on the earth find themselves inhabiting that, that is most people are not clear about who they are what their true identity is uh, they, they may think that they're physical beings simply physical entities not much different from a dolphin or a whale or a bird in the sky or a fish in the sea uh, you know a, a, an animal life form and that's the extent of their identity and if they think that that's who they are and I want to say that billions, not a few, but billions of people actually hold their experience of themselves in that way. If they think that's who they are, then they're very likely to feel threatened by what's happening right now on the planet, which, of course, exacerbates the energy of the opposite and creates even more of it. And that's what we're seeing at a high level today, as I mentioned earlier, a higher level than I've ever seen before in my lifetime. It's interesting. You talk about the beliefs of being, there being three groups and, and the animal just being an animal, I come here, I live, I die, being one of those groups. Maybe you can share about that. It is fascinating, and I love how you stated in the book that whatever belief system we hold, if, it, if it's in science and you say, well, maybe this pharmaceutical works, maybe it doesn't, you test it. If it's in sports and you say, maybe this training program or this strategy works or doesn't work, let's test it. But when it comes to our belief system, we hold on to it for dear life. And I use that word specifically. Yes, yes, yes. There, there, there is, in fact, one thing we will simply not do with regard to our, to our most fundamentally held beliefs, and that is question the prior assumption. As you mentioned, when, whenever we make a discovery uh, in science, for instance, the first thing that a good scientist does is uh, put that discovery to the test. That is, she questions the prior assumption upon which the discovery was made. The same thing is true in medicine. As soon as we, we come upon a, a miracle cure uh, for any major disease, the first thing that the medical researcher does is to question the prior assumption upon which that, uh, that healing was discovered or was made and test it out to see if it it can be replicated, duplicated, if we can cause it to happen again and again. 
And this is true even in technology. So in, in most of the major areas of our life, in fact, we, we, we have made a habit of questioning the prior assumption. That is, we're very skeptical about what we are discovering and learning and coming to understand. And we really do put it to the test, which is, which is, by the way, how we've gotten as far as we have gotten in terms of our evolution as a species. Because, you know, we now have things that we can put the entire world in the palm of our hand with a handheld device, which we couldn't even do 25 or 30 years ago, or even less than that, actually. But as you pointed out, when it comes to the most important, this is the irony, when it comes to the most important area of our life, that is the beliefs that drive our, the engine of our experience in life, our most sacredly held beliefs, we refuse to question the prior assumption. We imagine that there's nothing more to know on this subject, and don't you dare question it, because if you do question it, you are a blasphemer, you're a heretic, you're apostate, uh, and, and it's inappropriate to question the prior assumption upon which our spiritual or philosophical understandings and decisions are based. That, that's an extraordinary mistake uh, that we're making, and it causes us to walk into dead-end alleys where we, we can't seem to solve the problem that's facing humanity because we refuse to look at at least one possible cause of the problem, which is why in the book, uh, I encourage people to ask, simply to ask a question. And it's, it's not even a question that, that, that is dangerous, <laughs> unless it is, but, but I just say to people, is it possible? Is it just possible that there's something we don't fully understand here about God and about life and about ourselves, the understanding of which would change everything. And I invite people to not only ask themselves that question, Michael, but to place the question before the house, you know, at the water cooler at work, when you're having a dinner party at home, uh, and wherever you happen to be among intelligent and uh, uh, mature people who really want to look at life and, and have a true desire to explore it more deeply, to ask that question. I'm going to repeat it one more time so people can really catch the question. The question is this. Is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here about God, about life, and about ourselves, the understanding of which would change everything? Now, of course, if your answer is no, Neil, that's not possible. We, we understand all there is to understand, then this discussion is over. But if you have a thought, well, yeah, I suppose there may be some data out. <laughs> Maybe we haven't collected all the data yet. Uh, if you think that's possible, now we have an open doorway through which we can intellectually move into an excursion that could change your life and that could change the planet. There is a big, scary premise in that statement that you made. The understanding of which would change everything. And that's a big hurdle for people to overcome, isn't it? It is, unless it isn't. And, and it, it, it is, for uh, apparently from my observation currently, for the largest number of people on the planet, but a growing number of people who have come to be called cultural creatives, that is, those who step into the process of recreating our cultural story, uh, for that growing number of people, it really isn't uh, difficult anymore. Uh, and I'm, that's why I'm seeing a slow but sure shift in the way humanity is responding 
to the contextual feel that we have been collectively creating. So thank you. Let's talk about real briefly the three groups. Group one came here from nowhere, die and go somewhere special. This is a complete and total butcher of a paraphrase. Group two, it's all science, it's all material. When you're dead, you're dead. Group three, the divine is infused within uh, each of us. Yeah, what, what, uh, for those of you who are wondering what in the world Michael's talking about, <laughs> he's talking about the, the three groups of beliefs, the three kinds of beliefs uh, that people hold as true in their life. Group one holds the first belief that Michael outlined. Uh, group two holds the second belief. And group three holds dear to the third belief. The sad thing about that, uh, even all three groups, is that most people are refusing or unwilling to even challenge those beliefs, as we just discussed. And that's what's causing the slowness, the tardiness, you might say, uh, in, uh, in our evolutionary process here on the Earth, as I observe it. But it's, 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 we, we can change all of that if we choose to, and that's, that's what the book talks about. We can make a decision to actually change um, that by altering what it is we hold as our unchangeable truth, as our belief that we, that we don't dare examine or explore. So it's a very daring decision, but it, the decision can lead us to a whole different way of living our life and ultimately a whole different way of experiencing life on the earth collectively. So let's let's dive into that. And I'm glad you used the word collectively. You 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 make a fun story in the book about he who dances with the branch. What can you tell us about this and what are the challenges with religion? I'll put that in quotes, or we'll put challenges in quotes. Well, you know, religion got its uh, its start in in my awareness. Uh, I don't know if this is factually true. But I've been caused to have an insight into how we ever got into a place where we thought there was something else, something other than us, something larger than us, something more powerful than us in the universe that could actually have a certain level of control over our lives and could create conditions and circumstances that would be uh, impacting our lives. In, in the caveman days, in the earliest days of humanity's evolution, we, you know, we didn't have any awareness of what was going on around us. We were, in fact, ultra super primitive beings. Literally sitting around a campfire it was amazing. We even discovered fire. That in itself was a, was obviously a major forward movement in the evolution of our species. But let's let's presume now that we we discovered fire, and and we're all sitting around the campfire, uh, but we, we we begin to have a notion that there's something uh, else other than us. Uh, and how that notion came about, one way it could have come about, was there was a time, there was a time when well, the people, the clan, maybe you've heard of a book called Clan of the Cave Bear, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it, it, there was a time when the clan had experienced a drought that had gone on for many, many months. And uh, this was dangerous to the clan because there was not much to eat anymore. They couldn't pick, uh, the animals were dying, they, they, they couldn't pick. Uh, vegetables, fruits, and you know they, they, they couldn't pick things to eat because all the trees, all the fruit-bearing trees were dying. Everything was dying out because of this uh, eight, eight or nine-month drought that went, went on for two-thirds of a year. And this made everyone pretty upset, including the leader of the tribe, the leader of the clan, who became angry and abusive. 
the leaders of the clan, by the way, were always the, the, the biggest, burliest, you know, the meanest, the most, the strongest, most muscular men in the group. And they were the leaders, and the, and the biggest one of all was the prime leader. Now, they didn't want him to get upset because in the past, if he got upset, he would be even more mean than he usually was. So they tried to figure out what could we do to stop him from being too upset. And so they threw, because of this drought, so the clan threw a big, what we would call today in today's language, a big gathering or a party around the campfire just to maybe keep him happy and put him in a good mood. And one of the people in the clan, one of the guys, went out into the woods and snapped off a branch from a tree. It was easy to do because the trees were brittle and dry. So he snapped off a branch from the tree and came back to the campfire and did a little dance around the fire shaking the branch and its dry leaves as a kind of a little noisemaker, just shaking it and to the rhythm of his dance. Uh, and the, the leader of the clan was enjoying it. He thought, well, that was, that was a nice little dance he just did, and he enjoyed it. But what happened was, at that precise moment, the rains came. The rain began to fall. For no apparent reason, it just began to rain. And the drought was ended. Now, being people of rather primitive understanding, the members of the clan came to an immediate conclusion that what caused the rain to fall at that precise moment was, in fact, the dance with the branch. Thus was the rain man invented. And the rain man began to have a place of honor within the tribe, within the clan, second only to the clan leader himself. And so he was he was he sat alongside the clan leader and and whenever rain was needed in the future, they invited the rain man uh, to do his little dance with the branch. And and uh, interestingly enough, because they be, because the members of the clan believed that if he did the dance, the rains would come nine times out of ten, the rains did come. Not because, of course, the dance with the branch created the rain, but because their belief, they wouldn't have put it this way in that time. But as we look back over it, we see that metaphysics are metaphysics, whether it's this year or, you know, five million years ago, metaphysics being what they are, the thought that was held by the largest number of members of the clan, that when he does this dance, the rains will come, cause the rain to come more often than not. Thus was born an idea called faith or belief. And the, the man with the branch, who did the dance with the branch, soon became almost like a high priest uh, in the group, and thus was born religion. That is a thought that there's something else, bigger or, and more powerful than us, whose actions and decisions can be influenced by us if we just do the right thing, if we do the dance with the branch, the, or these days, if we you know, perform some other ritual that would be equally pleasing to God, going to Mass on Sunday, or saying a novena, or saying some other kind of prayer, or following the Ten Commandments, or whatever we think in our own belief system that God wants us to do as our ritualistic acknowledgement that that which is greater than us can be pleased if we will only follow instructions. And that's my little short story about how we got to where we are today and how we created what we now call religions.
New Zealand Music Month, and you can't get much more New Zealand than Geoffrey Clarkson. That's his track, Dancing on a Still Pond. So we'll get back now to Neil and uh, Michael Chandler. It, it's fascinating. There's several directions. I want to see if I can tie them all in together. One of the things is you said that, that this, um, this leader, he could have some meanness to him. I, I also think he might be a little bit of a father figure. You want to, as you put, keep him happy and put him in a good mood. That sounds like, at least with Western religions, I need to go to Mass on Sunday if I want to keep him happy and put him in a good mood. So that, so that he doesn't punish us, so that he's not mean to us. In our present religious environment, we, we, we call that, and we have two thoughts around that. First of all, that God will, some people think, some people actually think that God will cause bad things to happen in your life right here and now, in your earthly life, if you don't obey God. And, and there, then there are billions of people who believe that even if your present life goes reasonably well, you'll pay for your sins, you'll pay for not obeying God and not obeying God's commandments after you die in what's called the afterlife. That is, there's a belief that God will send us to a place called hell, condemning us to everlasting damnation. And in some cases, for the most, if you'll excuse me, the most trivial of offenses, like not going to Mass on Sunday, to give you one example. A mortal Many, sin. It's a mortal sin. A mortal sin. In the Roman Catholic tradition, and I'm not making fun of Catholicism, I'm merely, I am merely explaining the theology of that religion. That religion holds that there are mortal sins which condemn you to immediate hell if you are, have not been for, uh, confessed and forgiven those sins in the confessional. Or there are venial sins, which are kind of like spiritual misdemeanors, which wind up sending you to purgatory which is not eternal, but you just have to burn off your sins and become worthy to join with God again in heaven, or you get to be uh, go straight to hell if you die with a mortal sin on your soul. And, and what Catholics believe is that even missing Mass on Sunday without a, a, an appropriate excuse, maybe if you have a, a sick parent or a sick child, you're excused, or if you have to work on Sunday to make a living to support your family, you can get an official excuse from the priest but if you don't have one of those really good reasons, you had better go to Mass every Sunday morning, every Sunday, without fail. And if you miss Mass, you have committed a mortal sin, not a venial sin, not a misdemeanor, a mortal sin. That is, if you get hit by a car leaving the church and you die on the sidewalk, you're going straight to hell. And that level of fear, and by the way, I'm not making this up, check your Roman Catholic I was sent to Catholic high school. Yeah. And I thought for a while, well, they stopped teaching this, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe they stopped teaching this. So I looked it up on the Internet just a few months before finishing this book and discovered, much to my surprise, that the Catholic Church still holds to that theology to this very day. So there you have it. So fear is being used by not just the Catholic Church, but many religions, as a means of getting us to obey the commands and the demands of God. And not to realize the greatness of who we truly are, which, which we're going to get to very shortly. You said something fascinating, one last fascinating nugget and the Dances with Branches story, which is that when people believed that if the rain man danced for the rain, 
nine out of ten times it rained. There's a collective belief system. If we're worried and watching the news, the weather, and there's this massive storm coming, it's almost like as we watch it, it becomes more of that. There's no question about that. You know, and uh, all the great spiritual teachers of most of the world's religious traditions have told us as much. I'm, I'm familiar with the words of Jesus, who put it quite simply, as you believe, so will it be done unto you which can be incredibly powerful once we let go of the power greater than us. So, so let's talk about instinct for a minute here. Is survival our basic instinct, human nature, or is it something else? No, sur survival is not the basic instinct, but because we think that it is, we are, here again, we've been taught by our old cultural story that in fact, survival is the basic instinct and we hear this in school we hear it all the time from the time we're old enough to understand these things we're told that survival is the basic instinct so human beings make most of their decisions even small decisions how can i survive this argument how can i how can i win the point uh, much less larger decisions how can i survive and, and, and stay alive we make many of our decisions our life choices based on what we call the survival instinct but i'm told and I was told in conversations with God that survival is not the fundamental instinct um, of human beings. If survival were the fundamental instinct, you'd never run into the burning building. To use an example, let's say you're walking down the street and you turn to your left and, oh my gosh, there's, there's a, a building on fire. And, and then you hear a baby crying uh, from what appears to be the second floor. And of course, you run having heard that baby crying, you run immediately into the building to save the baby from the fire. You don't, you don't stand outside the building and weigh the odds. Let's see, I could possibly get really hurt badly here. I don't know whether I should, maybe I should just take, get, get my phone out and call 911. No one seems to be responding to this fire. None that you don't, you see, without thinking, you simply run into the building. That is nine out of 10 people wouldn't think about it. They would run into the building to save that baby. Even if they have a fleeting thought that it might cost them their lives, they would run into that building. And uh, because and if survival were the basic instinct, the fundamental instinct, you'd never do that. You'd run the other way. So it turns out that survival is not the basic instinct. The basic instinct, the fundamental impulse within uh, human beings is the impulse to express divinity. That is the impulse to express your true nature. That is the impulse to become and to experience who you really are. And who you really are understands that your life can't be threatened. This particular physicalization, what we would call this particular incarnation, could be terminated. But your life, that is your living, the, the, your experience of yourself as a living entity, cannot be terminated in any way. So we express the highest and best within us, what some people call the better angels of our nature in moments like that. And what I was told in conversations with God was, Neil, if you want to really see your life transform overnight, consider every moment a burning, building moment. Wow. Wow. We're going to double back around. In fact, let's go to the choice right now. Choice A, physical being. Choice B, spiritual being manifesting physically. What does this mean? 
Well, yeah, there are, there are two choices that we get to make. And, and that's a choice that I put in front of my audiences when I travel uh, around the world and giving lectures and workshops. I tell people in the audience, you may not know it, you may not have thought about it this way, but I promise you, you've come here this evening uh, with the intention at the soul level of making uh, a major decision in your life. And you're, you're going to answer the question, who am I? What is, what is my true nature? What is human nature truly? And, we, and as you mentioned, Michael, we have two choices we can make. We can decide that we are either physical entities, and that's the beginning and the end of it, or that we are spiritual entities having a physical experience. And if we're spiritual entities manifesting physicality, one has to ask, I would imagine, why? Why would we do that? What would be the point of a physical entity who is happy, free, joyful, uh, and without limitation, what would cause that spiritual entity to, I want to use the word physicalize, that is to become physical uh, in the physical world? For what purpose? For what reason? And then we have a second decision that we get to make. If I am a spiritual entity, if I decide, you know what? I get it. I get that I'm a spiritual creature. And I'm not just, just physical. I'm not just a chemical body, a chemical being. I'm a spiritual being. So if I decide that I am, then I have to make a second decision. Am I one spiritual being among 7.5 billion similar spiritual beings? Or is it possible that I'm merely one aspect, one expression of a singular manifestation? Or, as I put it in the book, is it possible that I am to God? as a wave is to the ocean. See, we see the wave as not being separate from the ocean, mm -hmm. as not being anything other than the ocean. It is clearly the ocean, but in individuated form. So it arises from the ocean. It, it manifests in all its majesty, in all its beauty, in all its power. And when that individual expression is concluded, is finished, is complete, that wave recedes back into the ocean, becoming fully present in the ocean itself, but never having separated from the ocean, but merely a part of the ocean expressing as an individual wave. Now, I am, in my understanding, to God as a wave is to the ocean. That is, I, have, I arise from divinity, I express divinity in individuated form, and then I recede back into divinity at the end of what I call my physical life. It's a wonderful metaphor that I was given in the conversations with God Dialogue that helped my mind to understand a, a, a very complex concept, my oneness with God. As a wave, it would make no sense to say, I am the wave that's right. You're not. I am separate and different and won't tolerate you. We could say that we're different. Differences don't disappear. And I, and I want to make that point because one of the reasons that people don't enjoy the thought or are sometimes frightened by the thought of our oneness is that they think that oneness eliminates individuality mm -hmm. or differences. So, so it is okay for the wave to turn to the wave next to it and say, I'm different. But not that I'm separate from you. I couldn't be. I cannot be separate from you. I am simply an individuated expression 
of the same thing that you are an individuated expression of. So we are singular in that way, but we but singularity uh, in that way does not mean division, that we are separated. So differences do not have to create division. Contrasts do not have to create conflicts. Thank you. Let's talk about some of some of the interesting things here, the, some of the curiosities. So you have some beautiful questions here. If we really are spiritual beings manifesting physically, where does one soul end and another begin? <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> there, 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 there is only one essence in the universe. And uh, I, I'm, I'm led to understand in conversations with God that there really is no place where my soul ends and the soul of another begins. But there is any more than there's a difference. Like, let's just use a metaphor in your own house. As you move from the kitchen to the living room in your own house, where does the air from the kitchen end and the air from the living room begin? When you walk through the doorway, do you just cut? Oh, oh, I just I just walked into the other air. Well, of course, it, 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 that's not true, because this, this, the, the, the same air permeates both the kitchen and the living room, uh, and there's no dividing line between the two. So if you, we use that as a metaphor, we see that there is no place where my soul ends and where another's begins, but there is a place where the intensity of the energy is less clustered. That is the essence of, of the universe, the essential energy of which everything is made, tends to clump up, if I could use awkward language, sure. tends to cluster or clump up in certain places. It might create planets. Clumps of energy are, could be called Jupiter or Mars or Venus, or they could be called Neil or Michael. And these, these clumps of energy tend to vibrate and manifest themselves in very individual ways, even as Mars is different from Venus, and Venus is different from Jupiter, so is uh, Neil different from Michael, so is Neil very different from his wife, thank goodness for that, as the French say, viva la différence. But our differences do not mean that we are other than, it simply means that we are different from, and there is no space where the essence of who I am ends, although there is a space, you know, as further away from distance as we uh, distance from us as we get where the essence of nealness becomes thinner and thinner i'm using simple language uh, uh, less dense and less dense and less dense until it almost seems to disappear and to no longer exist so it turns out that the space between souls is the same thing of which the souls are made only less dense and therefore carrying less individuated identifying characteristics. Forever, forever, life is forever, 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 life is forever,
relevant to the conversation isn't it life is forever another one from jeffrey thank you this gets into well it gets into many different concepts the one that's uh, two that are coming up to me is the body human rather than the human body and the importance of compassion well i don't know that compassion is important unless we decide that it is we, we, we want to make it clear when we have discussions like this, because if we start making blanket statements like the importance of compassion, then we start getting very close to what religion says, which is the importance of going to Mass on Sunday or any other behavior. So the compassion is not important, uh, ipso facto, that is, in and of itself. Yeah. Be compassionate or don't. It's, it's, it's up to you. 
But if you think that compassion is important, then you will give it the importance in your life that you choose to give it. Uh, and uh, what could cause you, perhaps, to decide that compassion is important is your observation, both of how it feels when it's coming toward you in a moment when you really could have used compassion for another, or when it hasn't come toward you in a moment when you really felt you could have used compassion for another. So your observation and your experience could give you reason to make a decision uh, that compassion is important. Why compassion is important is that if you decide that it is, is that it allows you to see into another person's experience far more deeply and far more richly, at least this has been my experience, than I could possibly see into another's motives and their reasons for doing things if I did not have compassion. So compassion opens a window, a, a passageway almost, I could call it a bridge, between my experience and the experience of another. And it allows me to ask a very important, striking question. If the expression, if the activities or the actions of another person are actions with which I fundamentally disagree, let's take terrorists, for instance. Sure. I, I'm not really into terror or into um, acting uh, in a way that causes other people to be terrified of me. But as we know, there are terrorists so-called terrorists on the planet who do act in those ways. And many of us, you know, we can't understand how could anybody act that way? How could anybody do such a thing? How, how could anything, you know, or shooters in schools? How can a 17-year-old or 18-year-old student or a 13-year-old for that matter yeah. walk into a school with a gun and shoot his classmates? So we so we don't understand how such a thing could happen. But compassion allows us not to condone it, not to approve of it, not to say, yes, I'm glad that happened, but at the very least, and importantly, to understand how such a thing could occur, because compassion would sponsor an, in, a striking question. What hurts you so much that you feel you have to hurt me in order to heal it? And there's a wonderful story in the book about the Pope who asked that exact question. Pope John, uh, I think it was Pope John the Second. Yes, yes, yes. Pope John the Second. When he was uh, when he was uh, almost assassinated, he was uh, on a on a uh, going through town in a in a papal motorcade, and some guy stepped out of the crowd and shot him six times, and um, unbelievably he actually survived, though he was severely wounded twice in the stomach, twice in the arm, once in his neck, I think, and he was shot six times. But when he recovered, he did two astonishing things. He asked all Catholics in the world, who of course were horrified that the Pope was almost killed, he asked all Catholics in the world to pray for his would-be assassin. Then he went to the cell, the, 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 the assassinator, uh, was actually caught, of course, they, and they threw him in jail for life, as you can imagine what happened in Italy. In Italy. Um, and, and so they threw him in jail for life, but the Pope went to his cell and, and uh, asked him, uh, had a conversation with him, why would you try to shoot me, or why would you try to kill me? And he, he wanted, he, meaning the Pope, wanted to understand how a person could do such a thing and why they would do it. They had a wide-ranging conversation. The Pope left his cell after giving his attempted assassin 
his papal blessing. And the two actually became friends. The Pope began exchanging letters with this man. They became actually pen pals. And they exchanged many letters a month uh, uh, in, in jail. And uh, ultimately, what's even more interesting is that the, the Pope actually, after a couple of years, asked the uh, legal authorities, the government in Italy, to grant the man a pardon and to release him from jail, which the authorities did. Now, you, you, you know, what could cause the Pope to do that? Well, he had great compassion when he understood why the man would try to kill him. Again, I want to make it clear, the Pope did not condone the man's actions, did not approve of the man's actions, did not recommend that other people copy those actions, but he did understand what was hurting this other guy in his belief system so much that he felt he had to hurt the Pope in order to heal it. And that kind of compassion allows us to change our response, alter our reaction. When people perform as human beings in ways in relationship to us with which we disagree. The, the Pope may very well have been re reminded, reminded of his own teaching as he went into that jail cell with his attempted assassin. He could very well have been thinking of a gentleman a few years prior to his existence yeah. who, who said to all of us, bless, bless, bless your enemies. And pray for those who would persecute you. And judge not, but be a light unto the darkness, that you might know who you really are. And I have an idea that the Pope just thought, you know what, there may be something to that. And if I'm going to teach this to the world, maybe I should live it. And so he chose to create a living example of that gospel. If we go to the Gospels for a very brief moment, so many amazing quotes. We have John 17, 9, 22. Father art in me, and I in thee. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Ah, and another, John 17, 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. Another one, Corinthians 10, 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. We are, we are all partakers of that one bread. And lastly, Corinthians 12, 20. But now are they many members, yet but one body. Yeah, those are wonderful quotes from the book that we're talking about today. Uh, and the reason I put those Bible passages in the book is to help people understand that this idea that we are all one is not some kind of a new age or new thought philosophy. It's been shared with us by the teachers of all the world's great religions, and the Bible is replete with statements made by Jesus himself and his disciples, uh, and elsewhere in the Bible as well, uh, statements that point to the fact of our oneness, our unity, that we are all in fact one, not only with each other, but in fact one with God. Conversations with God put it in a single sentence that I found very powerful. It says, conversations with God, all things are one thing. There is only one thing, 
and all things are part of the one thing there is. Amen. Can you tell us, Neil, this has been, I'm loving this so much. Toward the end of the book, in the chapter on the experience, you give three tools to help express that I am a spiritual being living in a physical body and that we are all individuations of a single essence. Can you give us those top three tools or I can walk you through it if you'd like? Well, the, the first tool that I used to help me experience my oneness and not just know it conceptually is that when I look at anything else outside of me that's going on, whatever it might be, maybe I'm invited to a, a cocktail party, maybe I'm uh, having a telephone call with, on the phone that's not so pleasant, maybe, maybe I'm engaged in a little discussion uh, with my spouse that may also not be so pleasant or perhaps it could be very pleasant not just negative it could be a very positive experience but whenever i'm having an experience that intrigues me because of its content i ask myself a powerful question what does this have to do with the agenda of my soul what and what does this have to do with the agenda of my soul and now what about that and see, what I'm doing is I'm contextualizing the experience I'm having and allowing myself to answer the question. If what's happening right now did have something to do with the agenda of my soul, what would it be? And it recontextualizes my experience of the moment as well as my response to it. The second tool that I use is a kind of a cousin, second cousin to that. It's another question that I like to ask myself, which is when I look at anything, the beauty of the night sky, mm -hmm or the ugliness of a muddy pool of dirt. It, 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 whatever I'm looking at, I ask myself, is there any part of what I'm seeing over there that I'm also seeing over here, and that I've also experienced over here? And uh, the answer for me inevitably is yes, almost no matter what I'm looking at across the room or across the, or across the globe. There's some part of what I'm seeing over there that exists in me that I'm also seeing over here. If it's a part over here that, I, that I'm not real fond of, that I'm not real happy with, I probably won't like the fact that I'm looking at it over there. When I look at certain political leaders, uh, no one named in particular, but certain political leaders, I may condemn that person without realizing that, you know, what I'm seeing over there, a little part of that actually exists in me over here, or I wouldn't recognize it at all. So... So what I have come to do is to judge not and neither condemn, but use that as a second tool uh, in a process by which I uh, get to experience my unity and my oneness. You know, the, the, the third tool that I was given and invited to use in my life is to ask myself a question. A, a, a third question, powerful question. What does God want to hear? I'm sorry, but forgive me. What does the world want to hear from God in this moment through me? And for me to understand that I am speaking in the first person voice of God whenever I speak to anyone about anything, because as we've discussed now several times, there's no separation between me and that which is divine. And when I embrace and conclude that I am 
one with God, that I am an aspect of divinity, a wave on the ocean of, of God. When I make that, uh, come to that conclusion, then I decide, you know, gee, I, then everything I'm, I'm saying must be, to some degree, an announcement from the part of me that's divine. All of us have spoken in the first person voice of God. If we've ever spoken of kindness or love to another, or of compassion, as we've talk, talked about here, or any any positive aspect of life, we have spoken in the first person voice of God. If you've, if you've ever forgiven anyone in your life and said, it's, it's okay, forget about it, you have spoken in the first person voice of God. And there are many, many, many other ways if you've ever encouraged anyone, you've spoken in the first person voice of God. And depending on how we want to define God, we can decide what words we choose to use to speak and to reflect our highest thought about who and what God is. Conversations with God said to me, Neil, every act is an act of self-definition. And you are not only defining yourself, you're creating that aspect of God that you are. If we don't speak in the first-person voice of God, and we catch that, then we can speak in the first-person voice of God to not pass judgment on ourselves for that. On ourselves. Yes, we can. And I'm called upon to do that many times a day <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm not living at the level, anywhere near the level I wish I were, the teachings uh, of the Conversations with God material and what's found in this new book, The Essential Path. But what's wonderful about The Essential Path as a book is, number one, it's very short. It's a very small read. You can read the book in an hour and a half or two. But more importantly, it's so concise that it gives us very, very deep insight into how we can express and experience the truth of our identity uh, and move into the full realization of it. How did you write it so concisely? What was the process and how much reworking? Because it's brilliant and it is tight and I absolutely love how it guides people along. It was really uh, a, a David that was sculpted and, and appeared. You know, um, the book was written in about two and a half or three weeks. It was very, very short because it's a small book. But but uh, nevertheless, it's it nutritionally written. dense, though, Neil. It, it, it is nutritionally dense. That's a nice turn of phrase, Michael. Um, it, it, it was a, a, um, a consolidation of several articles I had written through the months mm -hmm. and across the years. And I realized at one point after writing another of those shorter articles, I thought, you know what? I really need to pull these together and and then create some merging paragraphs that would allow them to be uh, to to have a through line uh from beginning to end so i did i pulled together some previous writings added some new material to it and produced this book in about two and a half or three weeks unbelievable so on that note where can people go to find your beautiful book and this is so important i can't recommend every i can recommend more than anything everybody everybody read it buy it share it Buy a dozen copies, give it to everybody else. Where can people go to find this book and find out more? Uh, they can go to EssentialPath.info. That's EssentialPath.info. And, of course, if they would like to, they can also go to any online bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Any online bookseller will also have the book. 
uh, and information about it. And that's uh, one way to learn more about this wonderful document. Beautiful. Just a few last quick questions, and I can't thank you enough, Neil. Um, oh, first off, if you didn't catch EssentialPath.info, come on over to InspireNationShow.com. We'll get you over to EssentialPath.info. First off, what would you tell parents to teach their kids about this? Because when they get it, we will get that one out of ten critical mass we need to shift. Well, I would uh, I encourage parents to let their children know that there is such a thing as that we call in our language God, that there is um, an, an essential essence in the universe of which they are a part, that there's no separation between them and, and all that is. And, um, and, and, there, and of course, I would encourage parents to do that in age-appropriate ways. You know, you want, to, you want to make sure that you're keeping in touch with the level at which your children can absorb such information. But most parents know how to do that intuitively. Beautiful. I've got to ask, what brings you the greatest happiness, or what I call the woohoo factor? That's an interesting question. I think um, moments when I feel that I have at last live, lived up to what it is that I have been given uh, as the messages that can change my life and, have ch and can change people's lives everywhere. So, so I think having the direct experience of my true nature of who i really am is it creates such moments uh, for me and and that's when i love without condition or without requirement when i ex experience being projected from me pure love uh, for everyone and everything whose life i touch I, i've got to add to that neil i love you neil i love you <laughs> That's a very kind thing to say to me, and I received that. Thank you very much. Thank you. What does it mean we need to choose God to be experienced as a part of us? It means to choose the highest definition of divinity uh, that we can assemble in our mind and to cause ourselves to do whatever it takes to express that in, as, and through us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. But if you're asking me from the, for the exact words from the book, No, no, wrong. no, I would never, I ever do no, that. No idea what the book says about that. <laughs> no, to me, to me, what you said is brilliant, and it really brings everything full circle, and it is about a decision. We get to make that choice in each and every moment. Every moment. And make every moment a burning building moment. What would you decide if you thought it was all on the line that is, if it was your greatest opportunity to express and experience the highest thought you ever had about who you are. And, and that's what it means to choose God, I think. Woohoo! Two last quick things. First off, wonder if you can read the lines from your wife's poem, and that's American poet M. Clare. <laughs> if you could read that, and then we'll ask any last words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Neil, by the way. Um, um, uh, yes, I'm happy to read this poem, which concludes the book. M, who is an award-winning American poet, wrote the following words. I don't know if my God is the same as your God. Is it made of love? Does it want for you what you want for you? Does it come to you with hands opened, asking nothing, but ready for anything? Does it whisper to you of light and of stillness? 
and point you toward any of the paths that will take you there? Does it remind you of your seeing? Does it remind you of your knowing? Does it remind you of the gentlest lover ever you dreamed, caressing a weariness from your heart? Is it ever late? Is it ever gone? Is it made of love? That was my wife's attempt to put into a poem her understanding of God. Beautiful. And my words of wisdom would not be my own, but what I was given from God. When I asked God, why wasn't my life working? God shared with me what I think is the single most important message in all of the conversations with God books. Your life is not about you. It's about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. This is one of those interviews, Neil, where I don't want it to end. I cannot thank you enough for the work you're doing and for joining us here today. Thank you, Michael. It was wonderful to be with you, and I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to do so. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, got to crank it back up for the finish. For everyone out there, this is Michael Sandler saying, be well, have fun, get the essential path, and begin making the daring decision to be who you truly are today and shine bright.
Well, you can't get much more New Zealand music than that. That's my old mate Dennis Marsh and Maku Emihi Atu. Right, so what's on at Infinity? Now, this Saturday, being the third Saturday of the month, we have our Spirit Fest. Now, this is going to be a big one this time. We've probably got about 14 people here. Could be, could be slightly less, could be slightly more. Um, these are all our mediums, readers, healers, people who come here on, on certain days of the week. And on this Saturday, they will be offering their services at a cheaper rate. So you can come in and get, a, get an idea of what you might need, a bit of a healing, you might have to come back and get some more, or a bit of a reading, all sorts of stuff. Having your bars done, um, meditations, any, all sorts of things, massage. Anyway, that's this Saturday, Infinity, 550 Anglesey Street, Waikato's largest crystal shop. And we'll be open from 9.30 till we go home, <laughs> which is four or five o'clock, round about then, that sort of time. Within Kakite, Namaste, Shalom, Asalam. I will go with you. The 
more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.